0: welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Mark Dubin talks with Drs. James Clark and
1: Robert Niclario about their recent article, A Modest Proposal for a New Way Forward for Clinical Research Involve Insurance Companies. Welcome to this edition of Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host for this episode, Dr. Mark Dubin from Baltimore, Maryland. Today, I'm joined by Dr. James Clark and Robert McClario from Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland as well. We'll be discussing their recently published IFAR editorial, A Modest Proposal for a New Way Forward for Clinical Research, Involve Insurance Companies. Welcome James and Robert, and congratulations to you and your co-authors on this paper. I chose this editorial instead of a traditional paper for a couple of reasons. One, I found it interesting because it addresses the role that biologics play in chronic sinusitis with polyposis with regard to fitting into the treatment paradigm. And secondly, and most interesting to me, it puts commercial health insurers front and center in playing a role in improving quality of care and actually putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak. With that, I'd like to start with asking either one of you, whoever wants to start, what interested you in this specific topic?
0: I'll take the lead on that. Um, I've been a rhinologist uh, for many, many years. And uh, you know, one of the most interesting things is chronic sinusitis with nasal polyps. And I remember as a resident, they told me, all you needed was seven patients with chronic sinusitis with nasal polyps, and you could just make a lifetime's living as you would keep retaking out the polyps and truth. And then, you know, in the 90s came along a paradigm that has worked exceptionally well for the years, which is giving people oral steroids and then following up with topical steroids and that works. And there's some very nice data which uh, hopefully we'll get to go over a little bit in the paper. But then there have been tweaks to it over the years, but really a few years back, there was a major change and that was the development of biologics that target what's called the TH2 pathway. So this pathway was discovered on polyps, and it turned out that if you knocked out some of the players of that, you went ahead and you had a resolution of the symptoms. So these got developed, and they got developed in a classic way, which is the advantage of the biologic versus placebo treatment on a background of intranasal steroids and they showed effectiveness. Now, one of the shortcomings of it was that not everybody responded. So there was a high percentage that didn't respond. And the treatment is expensive, turns out to be even more expensive than surgery as it goes on. So a few years back, we figured that the in um, the pharmacies that the pharmacy formularies that didn't develop these, would not be interested in doing comparative trials with one another, or comparative trials with other treatments. So we put together a workshop at the NIH, specifically gathering people that were interested in this to try to figure out what kinds of study designs, could we go and come up with a solution to where people should place this in the paradigm for the treatment of chronic chronic with nasal polyps? That was well attended. There was a nice publication that came out of that, but there wasn't any action happened, in part because it was happened just before COVID came about. So we were thinking about Who else would be interested in funding these types of things? If you think about it, if you've got a biologics that's successful and efficacious, you're going to try to sell it. And you're not going to do comparatives to other ones unless you think you can win so easily. So they're not going to do it. The NIH was interested and probably is still interested in the question. Um, but we thought, you know, maybe another way to get this done would be healthcare care providers, uh, the people with insurance. And those people might be interested and they might be interested because it might save them some money in time. Because currently what they do is they get some guidelines from a bunch of experts that sit in a room and say, uh, this is when I would use it. This is when I wouldn't use it. Those experts don't always agree. The guidelines aren't identical from every country in the world. The question is, how can we go ahead and do clinical trials that would be useful? Insurances don't do clinical trials. They go ahead and, uh, how should we say, they go ahead and just look at maybe the literature, get some of the opinions from that, and decide who should be given the treatment and who shouldn't. And that's, you know, a problem unto itself from that. So we set out with the thought and maybe James can uh, tell you a little bit more about how we uh, organized this editorial and some of the thoughts that we had.
1: Yeah, I mean, so James, why don't, what are, I mean? what's the current mechanism? I mean, so this drug is approved, obviously. You know, does, does a drug getting approved not basically say all what we need to say?
2: Yes, the process of getting a a drug approved to be sold in the U.S. requires a submission to the FDA for clearance. The purpose of the FDA, though, is designed to ensure the efficacy and also the safety of the proposed medication or treatment. As part of that process, they don't really consider uh, aspects such as cost or where it would fall within the current treatment paradigm is just outside of their scope of work. And rather they leave they present the data to physicians and insurance companies and allow them to to kind of make the decision of where the medication should be be used.
1: So there are defined criteria by professional societies, but one of the assumptions in all of this, obviously in your editorial, is that those criteria are are either not going to be followed or they're they're too loose and they're going to be over-prescribed and overutilized. So can you just explain, James, what those criteria are and why you, you feel that these drugs may be potentially used more than they probably should be?
2: I think one of the things that we have to be careful about is that the, it's easy for biologics to be deployed in any patient that fails to meet our or their perceived perception of improvement with treatment. It's easy to start these patients on biologic instead of treating and kind of manage them with all the other alternative treatments such as, you know, um, for example, in patients with aspirin sensitivity to, to send them down the route of desensitization to make sure that they've tried all the conventional treatments before we start on such a costly medication.
0: How do you decide what to do? So think of the clinical trials that were done. They took people with extremely severe polyps very large polyps. These were uh, you know the average hanging down past the inferior turbinate but not quite touching the floor and they shrunk them a little bit and it was clearly better than placebo but that is that the best population that need this right would people with, with smaller polyps respond better? Would people with fungus disease, would people with other causes of chronic sinusitis with nasal polyps? identify with this. I think the other big thing that is sort of missing is a figure in the paper about how many people with chronic sinusitis with nasal polyps exist in the United States. And then you take numbers, it's huge and I maybe should uh, use the figures that James put together here, but you know, if you estimate that about somewhere between three and eight million people have chronic sinusitis with nasal polyps in the U.S., most of them get treated with topical uh, plus or minus oral steroids, and that leaves about people that are inadequately controlled, now we're down to 42,000 patients. So we've gone from over 3 million to 8.5 using the standard sort of paradigm. If we talk about throwing surgery in there, then we go ahead and we lower that again to now somewhere within a month, inadequately controlled after surgery and followed by topical steroids or whatever treatment, you're down to about 1,200 so you've gone from over three million to down to twelve hundred that are inadequately controlled. So the current paradigm is taking care of a ton of people, and so you don't want to be using, you know, you don't really need something so uh, powerful and expensive from that. So I think that's one very big and important point that can't be missed. Another thing is you've got to think about the physicians that prescribe these, right? So currently it's primarily uh, allergists and otolaryngologists in this country that go ahead and prescribe this. Now, do allergists do surgery? Are they gonna want to have people fail surgery before they go ahead and do this? Or are they going to say, well, maybe I should just try this first before surgery. Maybe that's logical, maybe it isn't, but it's a huge difference in the cost. Surgeons might say, well, you know, if I prescribe this biologic and it works, then I'm not going to get to do my surgery and I'm not going to collect as much revenue. So you can see that there's bias on both sides of the prescribing physicians who might want to think. It's another very important point, I think, about who should be giving these drugs and
1: how they should be used. So if you were to design a trial to determine where these drugs would fit in the pathway, off the top of your head, kind of 30,000 foot view, how would you design that trial to present to a health insurance provider?
0: I would say that you're going to be going for the clinical trial would be probably what's called an adaptive design. Because you think another major problem with the clinical trial is when we started like in 2019 or something like that, there was one biologic available. Now there's three, maybe four biologicals for chronic sinusitis. So which one do you choose? And do you compare one to the other? So there are certain clinical trials where you can go ahead and develop what's called Adaptive design, and basically, you could start somebody on one, and if it's the data is not progressing well, then you could switch them to another one. From that, so you keep looking back at your data as you go through, and make uh, reiterations to your design uh, of the trial.
1: So, would you randomize someone to surgery? You know, some surgery first, and a bio- or a biologic first. Well, that's
0: certainly one question that you could ask. Um from that. Uh, and if you look at the trials, um, you know, some of them took both people pre- and post surgery. Um, uh, others just took people post-surgery, figuring that if like those figures that I gave you, if so many are cured by the current paradigm, then you know you're just really looking at the other part of it. Um, the other way. Is not necessarily a clinical trial to look at. Um, it's called, sort of what's called a registry or a large database. And what you're seeing here is saying that, okay, you know some so and so got prescribed this. Let's see how they did. You know, and the, you know, a lot of people call these real-world studies. Um, from that, our problem with that was that you basically needed. Everyone to participate. So, in other words, if you don't want to participate, and you prescribe it, uh, and you know that information is lost when these things are, you know, you would love to make progress at a at a at a speed uh, from that. So, and get knowledge from that. So, you would almost love it to be required um, from that, and. Before you say anything, one thing that came striking to my mind is, could we require physicians to do it? And the answer has always been, well, they're too independent. They're never going to listen. But Medicare, okay, made a huge decision not too long ago. They had the drug, and I can't remember it exactly, but the biologic for Alzheimer's from that, which had... Very poor clinical trial results and what Medicare said okay we'll pay for it, but only to people that are enrolled in a clinical trial
1: I mean the question is, is with commercial insurers do you even have to mandate it they have all the data they're tracking all of it there's data even that exists from a who's prescribing it and what interventions are being utilized on that individual patient moving forward the question would be then could you partner with them in the setting of when when they're simply looking for the least inferior option to actually be a partner so that it goes to my next question i mean you're optimistic
0: shall we say that first of all that they would share that data do you know like how many people refilled their prescriptions for dupilumab is that knowledge available right now no, and that would be important. The other thing is, do you, what data do you want? You know, are you going to see endoscopy scores? The insurance companies don't get that. Are so you going to see CT scans, the actual CT scans? They don't get that. So, you know, there's a couple of crucial pieces of information that are not required to be covered from that. And most of it is a discussion on the phone, um, from that. Do they talk? Do they know how many comorbidities? Maybe they could look it up if the patient stays. But what is it? Less than a year or so, people stay in these same commercial insurance. And then what about all the people that are like on Medicaid? And that's a large population of people that's data wouldn't be covered by that.
1: Have you gone beyond writing the editorial? Have you approached any carriers? I personally have
0: not. And that was like the biggest question that James and I would sort of scratch our heads over. What's the next step? Because we never thought until this recent development that somebody like Medicare would do that. And I've, you know, have a philosophy, but which is not shared by everybody. But, you know, like if you should have just some places studying this, the patient should go into it. It's like, you know, when I graduated from uh, residency, I think I did five stapedectomies. I'd be doing stapedectomies when I go out into practice in the world from that. And that's a, a tough question, you know, for the whole population to answer from that. So I would think that it has to be somewhat mandated. And I'm not the one to make the mandation. But I certainly think, you know, registry wouldn't be too bad as a way to go. But you would have to try to get everybody that prescribes it into the registry and every biologic to buy into it.
1: Well, I think this is an incredibly important question, particularly in the world of rhinology particularly where the, you know, the FDA approval process for what it's set up is basically a safe and efficacious. And based on my experience, interacting with health insurance carriers, they're basically looking for the lowest treatment with the least, you know, the, a non-inferior outcome. And with physicians looking to do simply what's best, you know, how do we get the data on where it fits in the paradigm? You alluded to it earlier, but isn't this the role of the NIH? The NIH,
0: we did that workshop with uh, Alcus Toyas, who's in charge of this part of the thing. They're willing to put their money where their mouth was. The workshop laid out study designs uh, from that and statistical ways to handle this, and not one put in a proposal. So the NIH was willing to fund clinical trials that showed you the way to do it. They're also willing to fund registries. But to make a registry work, you got to get everybody to put their data into it. And that is, to me, the
2: hard part.
1: So, James, are you looking for some funding? I just found some funding for you.
2: Yeah, you know, I think it's a <laughs> definitely a good topic. And it was interesting on this same podcast a few episodes back, they reported On Dr. Hopkins' work in the UK, how they were working around with NICE guidelines where they think that the ability to prescribe biologics is going to be even tougher than than it is here, how they were looking for ways to stratify patients according to risk factors to find who would be most beneficial to, to receive this. I think it's important that we try to emulate that type of work here to make sure that we're selecting the right patients.
1: So James is there anything specific about the data that you think is worth mentioning that we haven't addressed already
2: Yeah I think it's important that we recognize the the significant cost aspects of overtreating with biologics simply by increasing the percent of patients treated with a biologic from 3% to 10% the cost increases by about 60 million per annum which obviously is a a significant cost that would be incurred by the insurance companies. And also, we have to remember that if you look at the original paper, only about 60% of patients who received the biologic actually had a favorable response and benefit. So simply by being able to stop treatment after a specific duration can also present significant opportunity for
1: saving. That's great, James. Uh, Doctor Nacarier, any closing remarks?
2: No, I
0: wish you knew how to organize it so that you could get everybody to participate. And I think you're seeing the academy put out another call for regences and research groups to get together from that. And I think we have to sort of bind together and get as much get data out of this in, in a way that we can move faster because. If you think about it, it's been three or four years, and we don't know anything more than we knew at the beginning. You know, we now have a bunch of, quote, experts giving you when they think it should be used and when it shouldn't be used, but it's not based on data.
1: Thanks for joining me. This has been a great discussion. And again, congratulations to you and your colleagues on your publication. And thank you, of course, to our Scope It Out listeners. This is Mark Dubin for Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology, signing off for now.
0: Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors.